right now we don't have the data to know, you know, is there, say, a You vaccine? and your data. You could restore it And rescue me from You had my You Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup. And we have a part two of a coronavirus update that started last week. And if you didn't listen to that episode, I would suggest you go listen to that first. That sort of provides the context of what we're going to talk about in this episode, where we talk about where the virus is, what we've learned about it. And when I say we, I mean the medical community of which I am not a part. I just mean the collective we. And we are very privileged to have Lindsay Schultz, MD, MPH, again as a guest on our podcast. Uh, that means that she has a uh, medical doctorate as well as a master's in public health. And she specializes in harms reduction, which is this idea of helping um, governmental entities figure out the uh, the, the relative risk and reward of different public policies. And so it, it, it's really helpful to help understand this uh, virus and the things that we're doing to uh, combat the virus. Anyway, the previous episode talked about the status of the disease up to this point, and this episode will be dedicated to the good news, which is about the vaccines that we now know about. And um, I'm just going to end here and turn you back over to the recording. All right, let's switch to good news. <laughs> and we have some. We like yeah, there's we literally do. a light at the end of tu- of the tunnel that I think if you would have it, the it's the most cheerful I have seen Dr. Fauci <laughs> in the entire year. Like that Him that and- 90% number was I think more than we were expecting. That's a big deal, right? It, it it's it's a big deal like um you know and I and I have to caveat this that it it's one vaccine, it was their first interim look. You know, but a 90 percent, you know, efficacy rate gives you room that even if as more numbers come in, that declines by, you know, say 10 percent, 15 percent. That's still a really good vaccine. Just a quick editor's note. We recorded this episode right after Pfizer had announced their um, initial look at their vaccine. And they said that it had a 90 percent efficacy rate. And then just after we recorded this Moderna came out with theirs, and they advertised a 94.5 efficacy rate, and then Pfizer revised their numbers after they looked at more cases and came out with a 95% number. And then just today, as I'm editing this, I believe it was AstraZeneca that came out with another vaccine announced that has a 70% efficacy rate. As you'll hear, Lindsay was saying they were hoping for anything north of 40%. So all of these vaccines have great numbers. For people who may not be familiar, who are listening, I know hopefully everyone is familiar with the Pfizer vaccine announcement, sure. but maybe just a little background on that. So I will say, um, as as comparison, you know, the flu vaccine, you normally every year hear it was maybe 40% effective, 50% effective, 60% effective. That's because the flu changes a reasonable amount every year. So in the spring, you're trying to kind of guess what the flu is going to look like that winter. 
and you it takes you know six months to make that vaccine supply and you hope it's pretty close. One of the the benefits of, of the coronavirus and this one in particular is it seems like it's it's changing very, very slowly. And even though you'll see headlines about like such and such mutation or you know such and such this one thing changed, it doesn't seem like any of those changes have been anything that's particularly important or would change how you know we respond to a vaccine. So basically, unlike the flu, it seems like you know we're not we're not chasing a moving target. Um, most of the vaccines have you know zeroed in on that spike protein. If you've seen any of the illustrations, it's what makes gives the coronavirus its name. They look like little crowns sitting on the surface, and um, so that's what the Pfizer vaccine focused on. Um, one of the other exciting things about the Pfizer vaccine is it is the first of its type. Um, Moderna will also fall in this class uh, as soon as it releases its results. Um, what they did is um, this is an, an RNA virus, meaning our genetic information is stored in DNA. And then in order to make it functional, it gets um, transcribed into RNA and then translated into proteins. So in this virus, it it doesn't have DNA. It saves all of its genetic information in you RNA. Mean in this vaccine, right? In in this virus. Oh, and in, in, the, oh, in the virus, the the coronavirus virus. Yeah. So the okay. coronavirus is an is an RNA virus. So what they did in these um, genetic vaccines is they essentially looked at the virus, said, you know, what is you know the most important part of this, you know, virus. And like most of the other uh, companies, they keyed in on that spike protein. They took the genetic code for that spike protein, um, you know, made synthetic mRNA out of it, which is where we're calling these, these mRNA vaccines. Basically, you package them up in something called a, you know, a lipid nanoparticle, basically like tiny little bubbles. And you uh, you inject these um, into a person, and you have cells in your immune system that look basically like little octopuses that wander around, just kind of tasting everything. They'll come across one of these molecules of these vaccines, say, "Huh, what is this?" Pick it up, look at it, package it up, and get ready to present it to the rest of your immune system. The rest of your immune system goes, "Huh, this looks weird and and not normal," and it makes a response to that piece of of the virus, um, just like it would if you had gotten the virus, um, you know, just through infection being in the out in the environment. And, um, and it's turning out that this response for this a 90% response rate for a vaccine, even in an interim review, uh, was very impressive. I think most experts were looking for maybe 70% efficacy. So the, that's why the 90% number sort of, you know, everyone, everyone perked up um, when they heard that. So this vaccine, sorry, just going back. So when mm-hmm. you get injected with it, it's almost as if it's a little bit, looks a little like the coronavirus without all the coronavirus parts of it. Right. So it's just so, enough that your body can develop an immune response to it and build up that. And then if it encounters a coronavirus, it now knows how to attack that sp- particular portion. Right. So, and I, I know people are always concerned, well, you know, can I get the virus from this? 
the vast majority of these vaccines that are hopefully going to be coming online don't use the whole virus. They use, you know, the mRNA or they use the the protein spike itself, that protein that's on the surface. So you're just using pieces Horses of the virus. Horses. Gotcha. Right. So not something that's going to be infectious. Um, you know, because I know people always hear, you know, polio is <laughs> the big one that you hear stories with. There is one called a live killed virus, meaning basically you took the whole virus, did a bunch of stuff to it that it is no longer infectious. There's one company using that. I think that's the Sinovac um, vaccine from China that's being trialed in places like Brazil that so far the data they have released have been reasonably good, but it's not one of those I think that whether it's in the United States or Europe are actively looking to um, to buy or invest in. So for you, the most part, these are all just pieces that we're injecting people with. Do you know what the uh, NASDAQ symbol is for Moderna? I do not. It's mRNA. That is amazing. Yeah, I just, I <laughs> learned the other day that Moderna was literally named because as an abbreviation for modified mRNA. So, so can I ask a question? I'm not specifically about this vaccine. So I know you were talking about um, uh, China and they had their vaccine. Do you know how vaccine, and we talked about Pfizer and Moderna. Do you know how vaccine trials are progressing around the world? So I think there are five or six in phase three. Um, which is essentially the phase where you're looking for efficacy and safety in large groups of people. Um, so right now there's the the mRNA vaccines. So that's Pfizer and Moderna that are both um, the mRNA vaccines that will probably be dropping, you know, their final, you know, phase three check-ins within a month, maybe. Um, I think they're waiting on safety data now because they want data from the last injection that you got, they want two months worth of data after that. So that's kind of what we're waiting on. Um, I know safety is a big concern. And for most experts in the field, they say if you're going to have any any major side effects that are likely to occur in a decent number of people, you'll see those within two months. So that's the time frame we're looking at. Um, so that, that will delay their... Um, approval and release a bit but i think that's something that's you know necessary to to make sure that we're we're keeping not just everyone safe but for so the public knows that they can still have confidence even though these were trials that have been sped up they have been just as safe as any other vaccine trials that that we've gone through the whole the whole mrna like vaccine story is is the whole backstory is fascinating like it was essentially considered a non-starter there was one uh like hungarian born researcher that moved to the u.s and had worked on this for years and years um her last name was kariko and she kept pushing and pushing and was getting so few results to the point that she could not get tenure Mm. And at that point, they, you know, her options were, you know, like she was like, I guess I could go home. I guess I could change to something else. And she just kept pushing. And, you know, through the, the late 90s, early 2000s, eventually they found the tweaks they needed to to get it so the body would not break down the synthetic mRNA as soon as you injected it. And that led to this the whole field, you know, whether it's huh. from cancer treatment to the vaccines to, you know, 
that's like crazy high tech, cutting edge technology, you know. Mm-hmm. She's going to be the the Jonas Salk of uh, the two thousands. I mean, I, I've definitely seen a lot of you know people throwing around like at like a Nobel Prize for <laughs> for her that's and cool. and collaborators at some point. So going back to vaccines and countries, do you and you don't you could say that you don't want to answer this. Do you have thoughts on the Russian vaccine that is out there? Um. So. I will I will very carefully say that within a couple of days of Pfizer announcing its interim results on, I think it was 92 cases um, they ended up with. They attempted to do their first interim look at 62 cases, but the outbreak here has been multiplying so quickly that by the time they got to it, it was 92. Mm. Um, so meaning there's even more data in this release than we would have been expecting, which raises your confidence in it. Um, but the Russian vaccine company released similar data on 20 cases. Gotcha. And so it's a smaller set than what you would want to be able to look at Smaller set um, without much outside uh, collaboration. Um, you know, I will say that I, I believe it's been given to a number of groups of people outside of Russia. I think if it was having severe side effects, we might know. So my best guess is that it's probably not actively hurting a lot of people. But I am also not confident that it's actually doing much to protect people from the virus yet. Okay. Yeah. I, didn't, I, was, I was just curious because that's one of the things that I guess had come out first, right? Was, hey, the Russians have this vaccine. They're starting to distribute it publicly. Right. And then we started hearing about the Pfizer thing just in the last week or so. Right. So. Right. Right. And I mean, so we're sitting on we've got those two RNA viruses. Um, there are also a reasonable number that are using they're called viral vectors. Basically, what you do is you look around and you say, OK, here is a you know, virus that we can essentially make harmless, um, you know, put the coronavirus, um, whether it's a protein part or genetic information into to use that as our vaccine, as opposed to basically these bubbles that the mRNA vaccines are using. But that's when you're thinking about like AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson are using that approach. Okay. And they are also in phase three. Um, you know, hope is also reasonably high for them as well, because they're targeting the same protein. Mm-hmm. Um, just with and, a different delivery mechanism right and and these would you know come with their own own advantages you know when we're look the downside of the mrna vaccines is they have to be kept much colder i was just going to ask you about that i saw it was like minus yeah. 70 right or something yeah it's, it's like a minus 80 degree freezer sorry celsius freezer that most places don't have they run 10 or fifteen thousand dollars per freezer and they only last, I think, five or six days after you bring them down to the normal refrigerated temperature where vaccines hang out. Mm. So it's going to be a challenge to distribute these. The freezer but, only lasts five or no, six no, days? No, no, sorry. The, the vaccine. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, dang. <laughs> so, so in addition to like the Pfizer you know, stock going up, I'm also sure the companies that manufacture these freezers um, yeah, are going up. They're being transported in dry ice. So I'm sure big dry ice is doing well right now. Um, yeah, I was just thinking like the logistical nightmares of trying to get like, even if you had millions and millions of vaccines, just trying to distribute it with these yeah, requirements yeah. would be right. very challenging. So, so each of these vaccines will come with 
with you know downsides and upsides johnson johnson is looking at a one dose regimen meaning each of these whether it's moderna moderna pfizer whoever you need the initial dose and then a booster three weeks later johnson and johnson is one dose and the astrazeneca vaccine can be kept at you know the normal like negative four temperature that most other vaccines are kept at. Just another editor's note, since recording this episode, we've gotten more information about the other two vaccines. So both the Moderna and the AstraZeneca vaccines are saying that they can be stored at regular temperatures, which would mean freezing, but not sub-zero or, you know, the the negative 70 Celsius that we were talking about for the Pfizer vaccine. Also, they're advertising a longer shelf life. Both of them are saying that if stored properly, they can be stored up to six months. So those two combined make them actually probably much more practical from a distribution standpoint. So when you're looking at, you know, where are these mRNA vaccines going to go? It's going to be, you know, the countries and the facilities that have the ability to you know, basically to take them and to distribute them safely. But we have these other vaccines coming online that will greatly increase, you know, the places they can go and the, you know, the size of clinics that can be distributing them um, that I think adds to our optimism of how quickly these can be rolled out. So move, move forward a year. Up until this point, when we talk about, you know, say smallpox or mumps or rubella or anything like that, there is the smallpox vaccine, the mumps, you know, vaccine. Now we're talking about half a dozen potentially uh, coronavirus vaccines. You know, moving forward a year, I might have a choice of, or my doctor may have a choice of half a dozen vaccines. Which one would they pick to give to me? So right now we don't have the data to know, you know, is there, say, a You vaccine? and your data. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, you know, like I said, I we keep going. That Pfizer 90% number was super impressive. There's still a ton of questions we need to answer. You know, how does it affect severe disease? How does it affect, you know, hospitalization? How does it affect death rate? You know, how does it affect, um, you know, how easily people can transmit this disease after they've had a vaccine? Like, we know the vaccines will protect you. What we don't know is, will those vaccines help protect um, other people as well? Like, will it decrease your chance of getting the vac- getting the virus, but because you've had the vaccine, it doesn't really make you sick. It doesn't really take hold, you know, but could you still spread it at that point in time? We don't know that answer yet either. But um, when data comes online, we might be able to look and say, you know, is there a vaccine in here that performs better in kids? or in older people, or in certain subsets of the population based on, you know, what your underlying condition is. And that will, you know, potentially narrow, you know, what vaccine is best for you. Um, You know, the issue of cost will also come in. I think Pfizer for its two-dose regimen is coming in about $40, which in the American medical system, you know, to me doesn't sound terrible. But if you are, you know, thinking about rolling this out globally, that's an entirely different challenge than when you're looking right. at Johnson and Johnson that was, you know, looking at maybe ten dollars for that one dose, or AstraZeneca that's looking at maybe a couple dollars for a dose. So pricing is also going to make a difference. But so I just recently went and got a, my flu shot, which I delayed unfortunately. But I did go. And even there, though, Curtis, when you go for a flu shot, right, there are multiple vaccines that they could give you. Right. It's not you just say I want a flu shot, but 
like behind the scenes, there are, I think there were four different manufacturers and types that they could give you. Yeah. But I, 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 I don't recall being given a choice or anything. It just, no, well, I, 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 I was never given right. a choice either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think for, for the flu vaccine right now, you obviously you can have the optional event that's very popular in kids. If it's been a, a good year that everything seems to match, you can have the nasal vaccine um, for flu. There's also a, a dosage recommendation difference, I think, if you're above a certain age um, for the flu shot. So so you see there's those there's small differences. Yeah. I do. Um, OK, you know what? I mean, there I do remember when I got my flu shot, there was a question as to the, the, there, there was an age group that if you were over, it seemed like it was like it was actually like 70 or something that if you were over, you got a different shot. You got a different vaccine. Right. That it, yeah, yeah that it's, yeah, okay. it's right, so. so that, that's how they, you know, and <clears throat> beyond that, say, say all of these vaccines turn out to eventually have a price point that's kind of close effects that are kind of close. It's, it's going to be the same as everything else in healthcare. It's going to be, you know, who did you make your business deal with? <laughs> yeah. Okay. How well did you okay. negotiate? You know, who does your insurance cover? Um, yeah. Gotcha. You know, so, so right now I think they're, they're, they're saying they want this to be made you know, cost-free at point of care, you know, for, for most people. And we're honestly hoping and, you know, given how, again, like I said, this virus didn't turn out to be some sort of like Frankenstein thing, you know, that we had never seen or never been prepared um, for, you know, we, there's, there's plenty of reason to hope that this might be a, you know, a one, you know, one regimen and done vaccine. You know, we won't know until we see the data, but I'm not going in with the assumption that, you know, you will need this every year. You know, is it possible you'll need a booster every couple of years? Maybe. Um, you know, but I don't think we're looking at like a flu shot kind of thing that I think that once this covers enough people to reach, you know, the term herd immunity that I'm, I'm very careful of using because of how it's covered in the media now. Um, once you hit that, which for this virus, you know, might be 80 percent, you know, might be a little lower, might be a little higher. Um, right. just depending how you're calculating it, um, for the sole reason that, you know, we don't know how, like I mentioned before, you know, there are those people and situations where super spreader events can happen. If we could target just those people, we could probably hit herd immunity, you know, at maybe 40%, 50%. The problem <laughs> oh, is we don't know right. who those people are. Right. So, you know, we're, right. we're up there looking at, you know, 70, 80 percent. But I think once you hit that level, you know, the virus isn't going to to vanish because, you know, there's going to be some people that don't respond to the vaccine, you know, didn't get the vaccine. There's, you know, new people born every year. But I think you're looking at more of a a stable thing where, you know, you get your vaccine, maybe we'll need boosters down the line for it. But I don't think it's going to be like an every year. What do you see about like the mutations? Like there was, where was it? The mink that had a coronavirus mutation on it, I guess. And they went and killed all of them (laughs) or most Um, of them. Yeah. So I'm not a hundred percent sure how medically necessary that was. Um, Essentially, I know at least in Denmark before, um, for, you know, animal rights and economic reasons, they essentially had a goal of phasing out their mink farming by like 2024 anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. So basically, this was just doing it a few years earlier. Um, from what I've read, there, they just there's not a lot of information that this vaccine would, or sorry, this mutation would, you know, either change how the vaccine worked for us or you know how sick it made us. 
there's also um another vac another mutation that that gets a bunch of headlines and it's sort of like Groundhog's Day with a lot of the information about coronavirus that just every now and again they're like, oh, someone got reinfected and it's headline news and we're like, okay, this can happen again. Yes, it happens very, very rarely. Another one we see is there there's a mutation called the D614G mutation that the best information we have is when you put it in cells in a Petri dish, it looks like maybe it transmits a little easier. Mm. And and that, that's all the information. We have. Like that's it. We have no evidence that it happens in people. We have no evidence that it makes people sicker gotcha. or makes the disease more fatal or it would change the, you know, the way the vaccine works. Basically the way um, my, my virologist friends have described this to me is most of the time when a virus mutates, it's either for the virus to become less deadly and mm. just sort of more efficient at spreading or it, it usually if it's their one-off mutations, they're bad for the virus. Yeah. And those viruses don't manage to like set Spread. up shop. Gotcha. So basically it would take a major mutation in that spike protein that we're targeting that would somehow make the virus better able to survive, which they typically don't. Mm. So you're looking for a strong preponderance of evidence that any of these <laughs> mutations are really going to have an effect at a, you know, outside of a Petri dish. Um, When you're talking about, you know, I I can't even remember what the last number was, of 10 million people infected. One more editor's note here. There was a question that I neglected to ask Lindsay when we were recording that I decided to ask her via email. So I'm going to read my question and I'm going to read her response. And uh, because I think it was pretty helpful. I said, is there anything about an mRNA vaccine that would make it longer lasting than the traditional immune system response that COVID-19 causes? As in, I keep hearing that it looks like the antibodies go down over time and they're worried that it might not have long lasting immunity. Might these vaccines be different? She said, so we don't have data yet. So this is of course speculative, but again, her with with the data. But we expect most, if not all, the vaccine types to have a stronger immune response than infection would give because it's a concentrated dose of the most potent part of the virus, spike protein, in parentheses, so it really helps the immune system focus. And the problem with the antibody headlines is we expect them to decline over time. Once your immune system has finished fighting a virus, bacteria, etc., it has signals to tell it the acute risk is over and it quiets down active production, auto, in parentheses, autoimmune diseases are a type of thing that happens when that doesn't happen. Instead, what we have now are some studies showing, because we have a long enough time frame to look at, is the memory cells in the immune system stick around just fine, indicating if that if the person were to come into contact with the virus again, the memory cells could tell the immune system to rev up to active production again. So the headlines are describing a lot of things that my immunologist, virologist friends think is totally normal. We've just never seen a virus analyzed like this in real time. So back to the recording. Now, you know, they're they're now talking post-April before we can have you know, best case scenario, general availability of the vaccine to, to, to normal people. 
uh, by normal, I mean like they're going to start with in the beginning. It sounds like they're going to start with high risk people that are workers and all, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I and I completely agree with that logic. That, that makes perfect sense, right? But everybody else that doesn't fall into those categories, they're looking at probably April, May, June, whoever. I just hope that we can sort of make it, you know, between now and then without, without. I mean, it's just right now, right, right, you know, just to sort of go back to the beginning right now, it just looks pretty dire. Right. Uh, and the, the numbers just keep going up and, you know, it's, we're at the one of the most perilous moments because it's it's now nationwide. It's no longer geographically you know, centered, you know, spikes right. in places, you know, but there there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, that that we can see that isn't, you know, it isn't even necessarily a year from now it's a number of months from now you know i i understand to hear you know another six months you know may sound and feel overwhelming to people you know as i'm sitting here and it's now five o'clock and because we turn the clocks back it's pitch dark outside here (laughs) um you know i i understand that feeling but you know in the these the scale of science to have gone from probably about this time last year is when this virus really managed to get a foothold, you know, from whatever animal reservoir it was living in, in, in people in, you know, one province in China, you know, it took this long to become a, you know, a worldwide, you know, the most like intense, probably international experience that most of us will, will live through um, as a, as a globe. And to have, you know, to sit and say, you know, we're looking at a, a vaccine with this kind of efficacy and a number of vaccines and production ready to go on a lot of them that they could be you know, rolled out in a number of months from a scientific perspective is just amazing. You know, when I remember being in college, how long it took to find the genetic sequence of something, you know, let alone, you know, make it into a, you know, an, an effective treatment. Yeah. Is that like sure. a equivalent of going from like a steam powered car to a space shuttle in like a month? Like, yeah, essentially, <laughs> right? you know, like I, I remember in, in undergrad, like the, it would take, I like, it would take me two weeks to try to find one genetic mutation in something. And it took, I think 10 days from isolation of the virus to the genetic code being shared with every lab in in the entire world. Um, you, you were know, you were and, actually in college during H one N one. One thing I remember. Uh, I was in college during SARS, the original. Um, gotcha. H one N one. I would have been in in med school. Yeah, but gotcha. so I I remember like those days and and our reasonably good luck in 2003 <laughs> that it wasn't this version of the virus that spreads like this that it took more close contact and i've also since read some suspicions that where we were talking about mutations before there may have been a mutation in SARS the original that made it less catching that actually helped end the spread before it really took off mm. So, you know, we may have gotten lucky on two fronts there, but it was only spread after you were symptomatic. It was really only spread by, you know, latching onto cells deep in your lungs, meaning it what probably wasn't going to be, you know, just a simple like coughing near someone um, and a mutation may have played into it, you know. So for this virus to have happened at this time, um, you know, you you never want these kind of spillover events to happen. But I'm I, I feel very grateful that we had, you know, the the science and, you know, 
And as much as as politics has come into play with this response across domestically, internationally, you know, we had enough cooperation within the scientific world that this kind of response was able to be put together, you know, literally in a calendar year. It, it is, it is, you know, as a layperson, it is, it is pretty <laughs> impressive. Uh, I, I, I will say as, as a person who, you know, what I know of medicine, you know, comes from watching Grey's Anatomy, um, you know, <laughs> by, by the way, I, I last night I actually did watch the first post coronavirus episode of Grey's Anatomy as a two hour. Uh, and, and, you know, as is, it's just weird to see, to see that in, displayed in the in the popular media uh but it was really interesting to show they tried to show and do honor to the what hospitals have had to do to adjust to adjust um and you know uh, 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 persona you and i have talked about you know in in science fiction they always have the dumb guy in the room right and yep. so that the, so yeah so in this the dumb guy in the room was actually um the former chief of surgery who had been sent home due to other issues um and so he came he came back in the midst of all this and they had to explain all of the new um you know procedures to Mm -hmm. the dumb guy in the room uh for for our sake uh but it it was it was actually it was pretty good you know anyway i digress by the way today is chadur chadur dashi is day three of diwali Chaturdashi? How'd I do? What do you think, Prasad? I have no idea what you're saying, Curtis. Chaturdashi? I don't know. C-H-A-T-U-R-D-A-S-H-I. That is the festival of day three of Diwali. And that's where we are today. Yeah, all all I know is friends have been sharing just ridiculously good-looking pictures of food for the last few days. it's, It's basically all sweets is a big thing. Yeah. So, so I'm like, this time next year, I am reasonably confident that I could be celebrating, you know, Diwali with friends, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the country, you know, maybe somewhere in the world. I would, I, I would be willing, I would be comfortably willing to say that um, by this time next year. That sounds good. And and I think that's a good, a good note to end this podcast. I, I'm, again, super happy that we were able to have you on again. Oh, I am very glad to be here and, uh, you know, and appreciate the opportunity to, to be able to sort of step back and look at look at this from the bigger picture because it's very easy to get you know bogged down in in the numbers and in in the day-to-day with forgetting how how far we've come you know since the last time i was here five or six months ago no it's always a pleasure to have you and to learn something new because like you said for people watching news it gets a little scary and having an expert who understands this and can help walk us through what it actually means it's i think very useful to our listeners and to me and curtis all right. Well, hey, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna end up the podcast. And Persona, thanks for your great questions um, <laughs> and uh, your your lack of Diwali expertise is a little I'm, disappointing. I'm, but well, um, I'm gonna go eat some sweets. So I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks to the listeners. If you're still listening. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and make sure to subscribe so that you can restore it all. isn't worth a spit finally i needed your backup you had a chance to fix it instead it's all jacked up see how i'll write on facebook about you don't underestimate
the things that I will do. There was a fire, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. It'll be completely done Maybe 